0: Hello everyone and welcome to the second of these brief looks at the origins of some of the street names around Birmingham designed to keep us all thinking and occupied in what are currently rather challenging times. In the first episode, we took a look at roads beginning with the letters A, B and C. So this time around, it's time to look at D, E and F in the Birmingham alphabet of roads. We'll begin with D is for Digbeth, which is another very well-known street, if only by generations of people arriving in Birmingham by National Express coach at Digbeth coach station, a a building which was originally built as a bus garage, became a temporary coach station. In the late 1920s, until a proper one was built, and somehow that never happened. And we had to wait into the 21st century before a new coach station was built on the same site. And despite National Express's repeated attempts to call it Birmingham Coach Station, the name Digbeth Coach Station does seem to have stuck. Although today the coach station feels a little bit inconveniently far out from the city centre. It's worth pointing out that Digbeth is quite literally Birmingham's birthplace. It was the high street of Tudor, Birmingham. And before that, probably going back to Anglo-Saxon times, the area just where the River Ray crosses underneath the road that is now part of the thoroughfare through Digbeth, that was one of the few places when our river was in flood that it was safe to cross over the river. And as a result, that is where Birmingham grew up. We think that the name Digbeth is a corruption of ducks bath. There is a, a different derivation, which I'll come to in a moment. But although our little river, the Ray, has always caused endless giggles whenever I show it to anyone on a coach tour, on the few places it's actually even visible as a river. People have a habit of sniggering. But had the rain not existed, nor would Birmingham have done one of the reasons it is so hidden now is that it used to flood and cause absolute mayhem. And the Digbeth area was one of the few places that it was possible for it to be safely crossed. Having said that, the river was extremely useful for providing power to water mills, of which there were very many along its length, and Birmingham's rivers. This pretty much applies to all of them. None of them, the coal, the tame, the ray, none of them are big enough to be navigable, but they were all fast flowing enough to provide power to mills used for all sorts of different purposes, latterly especially for the sharpening of blades, the making of daggers and swords. But these things have have really survived as place names that survive. Think about places like hay mills, pebble mill. Mill appears in in lots of place names around here. And if you go to the Digmouth area, you'll find a mill lane and a heath mill lane. Now, when you have a water mill, if you've ever seen one, you'll know what I mean. Uh, In Birmingham, we have a surviving one, Sairhole Mill, in the south of the present day city, where you can actually see how these things. Work. But it's not enough just to have a river or a stream. You need to actually dam the supply of water, get up ahead of water. And then at the point where it drops to the lower natural level, that's where you operate, use that potential energy to operate uh, a water wheel. So you have to have a dam across a stream and you end up with a mill pond. Now, the Digbeth area had a number of mills. I mentioned Mill Lane, Heath Mill Lane, and so on. Um, at least one of these had a mill pond that was large enough to effectively seem like the village duck pond. Imagine yourself out in some Cotswold village like Willisey or somewhere, still famous for its duck pond. Devices, another good example. Imagine that with ducks on it. And there's always been a sense of humour, I suppose. So the pond would be referred to as the duck's bath. And over time, duck's bath gets mangled about by the English language to become Digbeth. The other possible origin, uh, which isn't as much fun, to be honest, but is worth mentioning, is that it could refer to a path, a safe dry path, leading across the flooded plain area or across the dam as a dike, and thus being dike Path. Uh, nor is the name unique to Birmingham. There's a Digbeth also in Walsall and a Digbeth Street down in Stowe on the Wold. But we think Birmingham One has this ducks bath origin, but it's one of those things that we shall never absolutely understand the origin of. Um, we don't have any clear Descriptions of Birmingham until in the 16th century, one William Leyland, sent on his progress around the country, talked about coming into Birmingham along what he called a pretty street called dirty. Other lovely (laughs) term saying it was pretty street called dirty. Probably he didn't mean it was literally dirty sure it was, but I don't think it was any dirtier than any other urban streets at the time. I think it was probably just the less fashionable end of town. In fact, it wasn't even part of the Manor of Birmingham. A dirty, the road coming down from Camp Hill towards the River Ray to cross over into the present day Digbeth. That was actually part of the encircling parish of Aston. Seems a very long way from Aston, especially if you were on foot. So a chapel of ease was erected there. In the early Middle Ages, dedicated to St. John. But we had this situation where this pretty street, this unfashionable street called Dirty or the Dirty End, and to this day you can walk or take a bus or drive along exactly the same thoroughfare. It is now called High Street Derrit End, Derrit End, another D if you like, like Digbeth, the Dirty End, and then over the bridge and into Digbeth itself. And that's exactly what. William Leyland did in the 16th century. And he talked about coming along this pretty street called Dirty. And then talked about the beauty of Brummagem being one street going up and along a mean hill. Um, This term, the beauty of Brummagem, it doesn't mean beauty in the sense of beautiful any more than dirty meant dirty. Beauty in that time actually meant the the principal feature that the salient point if you like and even i can remember years ago older people in the area talking about something important saying things like well the beauty of it was he didn't need a new car at all it was a simple repair the beauty of it was he'd already made a fortune on his other house And it's one of those dialect words that survives, but we don't quite understand where it came from. So the beauty of Brummagem being this one street going up and along a hill, you still have Derrith End, Digbeth, and then climbing up the bullring. As well as being Birmingham's birthplace, this was also the scene of the principal part of the Battle of Birmingham in 1643, uh, when Prince Rupert's cavalier army decided they would mete out retribution on these rebellious Brummies for supplying the king's enemies with swords. Remember I said that... We had a number of mills which were used for all sorts of purposes, but by the 17th century, Birmingham was especially famous for the manufacture of swords and knives. And of course, when we think about the 17th century, it was in the 1640s, the time of the Great Rebellion, this war between King Charles and his force of loyal so-called cavaliers, and Parliament which ultimately came to be Dealt with, if you like, by Oliver Cromwell's drilled new model army. Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that, and Cromwell wasn't around when the Civil War really started. But we think of it in history now as this split between the King and Cromwell, between Cavaliers and Roundheads. And generally in England, the North and the West, Royalists, the South and the East were parliamentarian. The Midlands was a real mixture. We had some extremely loyal Royalists strongholds like Hereford and Worcester and Lichfield. and we had some very staunch parliamentarian strongholds like Coventry and indeed Birmingham. And being on the parliamentary side, Birmingham's sword and blade makers had no problem whatsoever supplying the king's enemies, the parliamentarians, with weapons. And just like in the Second World War, when Birmingham's importance for manufacturing munitions gained the attention of the Luftwaffe, it was exactly the same in the 1640s. Prince Rupert was dispatched with his cavalier army to teach these rebellion brothers a lesson. His army arrived late on Easter Sunday, 1643. They camped outside the town on a hill which is still known as Camp Hill to this day. It might not have got its name from him camping there. It probably did. But there was a much, much earlier landowner called John Kemp. And it may be a corruption of Kemp's Hill. Whether that's the origin of the name or not, that's certainly where Rupert made his headquarters. He himself stayed at a a pub called the Ship Inn, whose successor survived into the 1970s, as many of the camped in the open or were in whatever cottage buildings they could find around there. The Brummies down the hill in the valley of the River Ray, they knew what was coming. There was very little they could do about it. Birmingham had never been a fortified town. It had grown up as what we call an organic borough. It's somewhere that just grew naturally, not for defensive purposes, but for trade. But the parliamentarian Brummies threw up uh, a great defence by building a barricade across the main road. Um, they were, to be fair, not much of a match for the drilled, pretty much professional army that they were to face early the next day on Easter Monday. But they did face them. Uh, the army came down the hill along High Street to Derriott End. They crossed over the river and into Birmingham. They had taken down or gone round the edge of. This defensive structure that had been thrown off, thrown up into the air. And Brummies quite literally fought on their own doorsteps. Imagine what's now a busy dual carriageway lined with half timbered houses, many of them thatched. Very easy to attack because it's all combustible. All the attackers have to do is simply set fire to their enemies' houses. And that's what they did. Rupert and his army burned Birmingham. But the Burmese gave a good account of themselves and the battle raged back and forth throughout much of the day, eventually passing off to the northwest side of Birmingham across what was called Birmingham Heath, And in my own nearby hometown of Smethwick, they will often remind you that the very last part of the battle was fought along a road that is now called Waterloo Road, just off the Cape Hill area of Smethwick. But this is part of the Battle of Birmingham in the Civil War. It made, actually, very little difference. Birmingham did a pretty swift recovery and carried on supporting Parliament and Six years later, when Parliament was effectively victorious, the King was deposed, he was put on trial, and he was executed, you could imagine the Brumbies all thinking, This is good, we, we we back the winning side. Phew. So imagine their horror a decade later, when Oliver Cromwell is dead, and his son inherits the Lord Protectorship of England, but his heart isn't in it, and no one really wants this man whose nickname tumble down Dick Richard Cromwell. And as a result, government, parliament decides to ask the son of the late king back to take up the throne as Charles II. And there must have been abject horror. Oh, goodness, you know, we back now the losing side, not the winning side. What will this new king do to these hounds that took up arms against his father? And actually, he did a lot to punish hounds. But luckily for Birmingham, he only did it with towns that had a town corporate existence, a council, a corporation, to punish. Well, Birmingham didn't have one of those. It had no body corporate until 1838. So pretty much Birmingham escaped scot-free. In fact, Birmingham became something of a haven for parliamentary and non-conformist people escaping from royalist retribution elsewhere. And they believe that in the 1660s, 70s and 80s, this influx of people escaping persecution is what first gave Birmingham its impetus to grow and to grow by absorbing people and talent who came from other places. It's amazing what you can find just wandering past the coach station, the old Civic Hall in Digbeth. So onto the letter E and E gives us Est Road, E-S-T-E, Est Road. Now, this is our first venture out of the city centre. Est Road is a, a road in suburban Yardley in East Birmingham. And it recalls the Est family who came to this area of what was then Worcestershire until in 1423. Thomas Est had been a governor of Kenilworth Castle, which is today a, a magnificent ruin. Down in central Warwickshire. It's a funny thing that Warwickshire had two very strong fortresses at Warwick and at Kenilworth. Warwick was effectively on the right side in the English Civil War and survived, albeit in some damage. Kenilworth backed the other side and ended up as one of those ruins that Cromwell knocked about a bit, as the old music hall song used to go. Um, they were slighted. They were made to be incapable of ever being fortified again. So Kenilworth Castle, though, long before the English Civil War in the 15th century, there's Thomas Estes, the governor of Kenilworth Castle. And his connection with Spurb of Birmingham is that he married a lady called Marianne de la Haye, who came from Hay Hall in Tisley. Today, Tisley is an industrial southeastern suburb of Birmingham. It's actually the place where I had my first ever tourism job when I worked for Birmingham Railway Museum, that was based in the late 1980s on the old Tisley Locomotive Works roundhouse site. But Hay Hall, the home of the Hay family, incredibly, it still survives. It's now surrounded by the industry which has proliferated in for last 120 years or so, but the owners of the site, which includes the Hall of Tube Company, were very, very sympathetic to it for a long time. That didn't always happen elsewhere in the West Midlands when industry took over country estates, but it happened at Hay Hall. And so good is the preservation of the hall that it still has some 16th century stained glass in the building with the initials AE for Anne and Edward while we're at it, by the way, the Dela Hays are not only commemorated in the name of Hay Hall but also in the nearby suburb of Hay Mills. That has nothing to do with a, a mill that ground corn or, or did something agricultural to do with hay, which many people think. Hay Mills is actually the mills that belonged to the Dela Hay family. So Esther Road in Yardley story of the Est family and how they, great family, that they were married into the local De La Hayes. F is for Factory Road. As you might expect in an industrial city like Birmingham, well, there are many factories, but there is only one Factory Road. It's in Handsworth, if you look it up, and as benefits its unique status, It commemorates a very special building and a very special part of Birmingham's heritage, the famous Soho Manufactory, arguably the first factory in the modern sense anywhere in the world. Soho Manufactory was established by the Birmingham-born Matthew Bolton. Now, Bolton was the son of a buckle maker who was born just at the end of Steelhouse Lane. And he was luckily for Birmingham, for Britain, and for the world. Bolton was that unique blend of a good engineer and an astute businessman. He was absolutely appalled as he grew up by his hometown's reputation for producing shoddy goods. Um, If you go to a dictionary, you'll find that Brummagem, as well as being a medieval term for Birmingham, technically also means still goods of poor quality, because Birmingham was very much associated until that time, we are told, with producing things of poor quality. And Bolton resolved that he would achieve the seemingly impossible. He would make Birminghamware renowned the world over. Uh, He believed that the best way to do this was to closely supervise every single stage of the manufacturing process. Now, until then, things were made individually at workshops that were often tacked onto the backs of people's homes or upstairs in people's homes. One worker would undertake one stage of production. They'd pass it on to another. But if, Bolton reasoned, all the different processes were carried out by one organisation and under one roof, it would be far easier to keep a check on quality. And so at Soho, on the high ground of Hansworth Heath, very poor agricultural land, so not worth much, Bolton established the Soho Manufactory. And right from the outset, it wasn't only a success, but it was also a curiosity. The crowned heads of Europe came to see this new wonder of the industrial age, as did other celebrities, notably Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson. And Bolton, he also had an uncanny knack of spotting talent in others and harnessing it to his, and I suppose their ends. When the Scottish engineer James Watt came to Soho chasing a debt which Bolton had bought, derelicts, ironworks, the Carron Ironworks in central Scotland. Well, Bolton realised that what had this talent for improving, not inventing, but improving the steam engine, what had come up with this idea of adding a separate condenser, which sounds rather technical, but is actually fairly straightforward as a concept. Uh, that's to say you keep one cylinder permanently hot, and one cylinder permanently cold. So you don't have to waste energy heating up and then cooling down the metal of the cylinder. And this almost overnight made the steam engine something that could be put to immense practical use, mostly for pumping purposes. They had existed long before, but they were expensive and not inefficient. But Bolton Helped by Watt's new design, managed to secure a 30 year monopoly of steam engine manufacture at Soho. Now, again, today that sounds like a rather dry fact, but imagine the only mechanical power known to man, and yet the only people that were allowed to make them were Bolton and Watt at the Soho manufactory. It gave them, as Bolton said years later, he gave him the ability to sell what all the world desires, power. And as if discovering what wasn't enough, we should also introduce a man by the name of William Murdoch, another Scotsman. He was a man who'd had some interest in the development of gaslighting. Uh, the story goes that he came from Scotland to Birmingham to look for work, Bolton and Watts said that there was nothing available. I suppose it was the 18th century equivalent of we will keep your name on file. And as he was leaving, he dropped his so-called felt hat on the floor and it made a dramatic boom sound and a bit puzzled by this. Boughton Watt said, why did your, why did your hat make that, that noise then? And he said, oh, dear, sirs, I am so poor. I cannot afford felt. I've had to turn this by hand from a single piece of wood on a lathe. And you can just imagine their shock and then saying, just just, just wait, wait a moment, will you? Just just come back. We we may have something for you. Would you like to go and live in Cornwall? Uh, not because they fancied giving him a nice holiday. The principal market for Bolton and Watt's new Fangord-efficient steam engines were in the increasingly... De- mines of Cornwall, principally tin mines, but they needed someone on the spot to oversee the service repairs, and that's pretty much what they sent Murdoch down there to do. And He was down in Cornwall for a very long time. He carried on his interest in generating gas that could be used for lighting, and he also is said to have devised a self-propelled steam engine, what would later become known as a locomotive which he was told to cease research on straight away. That was not what he was paid for. The story goes, he was told that by James Watt. Perhaps Watt was angry that he hadn't thought of it himself. But Eventually, the the kudos for inventing a locomotive, a self-propelled steam engine, went to uh, another resident of Cornwall, a man called Richard Trevithick. But we're getting rather off our subject here. Eventually, Murdoch was brought back to Soho. By then the Soho Manufactory wasn't big enough to manufacture all the engines and their components so they'd also taken over a site just over the Birmingham Hansworth boundary in the township of Smethwick and there they erected Bolton Watt & Company's Soho Foundry and in 1802 the front of the Soho Foundry was decorated with gaslighting in a display arranged by William Murdoch to celebrate the Peace of Amiens, which was the sort of halfway pause in the Napoleonic Wars. and That's believed to have been the very first public display of gaslighting in the world in Foundry Lane. Um, Although the Soho Manufactory is no longer there, the Soho Foundry at Smethwick still survives. It subsequently and still is in part the home of the world-famous weighing machine manufacturer WMT Avery. And inside the Avery site, there are still a row of terraced houses, in one of which William Murdoch lived. A rather grander place to live, though, is next to the now... Vanished site of the Soho uh, Manufacturing, Factory Road. Go up the hill from there and you will find the fascinating Soho House built by Matthew Bolton as his own home with all sorts of boys' mod cons, including a flushing water closet and the first underfloor heating to be seen in Britain since Roman times. And after many years of being a hostel and an hotel and all sorts of things, it's now a branch of the city museums and is a fascinating place to go and explore. It's one of only three places that survive where James Watt, Matthew Bolton, and many of their industrial and philosophical contemporaries used to meet each month when the moon was full. Not, I might add, because they had any werewolf tendencies. It was simply because they wanted to be able to see their way home by moonlight afterwards. But from this came the name of this informal group of men, the Lunar Society, and what they must have discussed and ideas that they came up with and the way that they influenced each other If only they had kept more records, they are quite literally people that changed the world. Um, Among the other members were Erasmus Darwin, physician who lived up the road at Litchfield, his house still survives. Uh, Josiah Wedgwood, the pottery manufacturer from North Staffordshire, his home of vitruria still survives. But there were many, many others as well, the Lunar Men or the Lunar Society. And one little part of that is Matthew Bolton's amazing Soho Manufactory, today commemorated only in Factory Road. And that completes our next three road names. Stick with us for the next of these podcasts, which will be coming along very shortly, where we look at G, H and I. But for now, Thank you very much indeed for listening. If you're able to do it, hit like on whatever software you use to download podcasts. Tell your friends about these, and uh, until the next time, as we say in Birmingham, Tirara a bit and mind the Australia."